Our text for today comes to us from Jonah chapter 4, and this will conclude our series on Jonah. Listen now for the word of the Lord. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, wasn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. But the Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God designated a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plants? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Shouldn't I also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for your word. God, thank you for this wonderful story. I pray that you would illuminate its truths for us. Teach us what it means. And God, I pray whatever words we would hear this morning would be from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've done three weeks now on the book of Jonah, and the first week we talked about how Jonah is often taught as a book about why you shouldn't be disobedient to God. And, and I'm not saying that that's a, a wrong interpretation, but I think it's overly simple sometimes. And we, we said that week that, you know, a lot of times Jonah is chastised and, and made an example of, you know, this is why you shouldn't be disobedient. And so we go and we think, well, we would never be disobedient like that. But often we're not really given a chance where God comes down, tells us to do something, and, and we get the option to turn or go. It's more an intuitive process, our obedience to God or our disobedience to God. And so I asked you all that first week to kind of ask the question, how are we also disobedient toward God? How are we also not always open to the divine commands that we hear in our life? And so we thought about that. 
The next week, we kind of ask the question, if we're willing to admit that we, we are disobedient people, which we are, and we say a prayer of confession every week to acknowledge this, if we're willing to admit that we're disobedient, the next question that we had to ask was, well, how do we turn from that, you know? How do you, how do you become repentant? What does it mean to repent? And we landed where Cynthia Bourgeau lands, and that is that r- repentance is, is kind of stepping into a larger mind, right? Oftentimes we said that, you know, repentance is, is um, defined as you're going one way, and then you turn and you go a different way. But as we learned in the story of, of Jonah, sometimes you, your actions of repentance don't match the repentance of your heart. And so we talked about that deeper repentance, that stepping into the mind of God. And we asked another question after that. We asked, how do we do that? Or what's keeping us from doing that? How do we transform? And that's our question for today. And so here we are with Jonah He's in the desert, he's gone outside the city, and he's very, very upset that the Ninevites have listened to his message, calling them to repent. He's very upset that they have listened to him, but he's even more upset that God has repented of God's actions, that God was going to destroy the city, but now that God sees what the city's up to, God says, well, this is good. This is good. I'll I'll have mercy on them. I'll have mercy on them. And this, this really upsets Jonah, and so he goes away. And he's going to argue with God seemingly into eternity. It's a story, it doesn't really end well, does it? it you heard it end on that kind of awkward question. And it, that final phrase is so funny. Some, some uh, translators translate it as, and also many cattle, or and also many animals. And it just sort of lands there, and you're like, what? What happens to Jonah? What happens? Someone came up to me after the service um, last week, and I won't mention any names, but her, her name rhymes with Barbara Smith. She came up to me, and, and she, she gave me this wonderful, wonderful quote that I'm absolutely going to butcher right now, so if I do, just shout out, and I'll... I'll I'll, uh, I'll correct this, but she said she had heard from a pastor somewhere that, um, that grace, grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and then mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? Let that sit in your mind for a second. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and I really, I really, really like that, and I was, I was thinking about it. You know, you could, I could do a whole sermon series on that, but I was I was kind of thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, grace, grace is getting. It's, it's, it's almost being offered to you, right? That this divine grace, we might say. It's something that is offered so that you don't have to get what you deserve. Am I saying that right? <laughs> so that you don't have to get what you deserve. But I, I was thinking there's, there's another side to that, right? That God can offer us this grace... And this kind of grace is sort of offered to Jonah, isn't it? This grace can be offered, but there's another side in which it has to be received. It has to be received. 
I believe, like many of you, that grace is transformative. That grace can do wonders in our life. If you've ever received grace, you know, you know how good that feels. I was, I was the student in college that um, always needed a deadline extension on my papers and all my other work because I was always doing much more important things than the things I was supposed to do. And um, so I would email my professors sort of frantically and be like, can, you, can I please get an extension on this? Can I get an extension on this? And they would offer sort of a grace period, right? And I willingly received that grace period. <laughs> there were no issues with that. But there are other graces that we're given in life that I think oftentimes we have trouble receiving. And I don't think we can transform if we're not willing to receive. There's this great parable. I, I think it's a parable. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't think they call it a parable, maybe. But the rich young ruler, have y'all, y'all heard of this? The parable of the rich young ruler? Yeah, it, go, it, goes, it goes something like this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So I'm not going to get it right. But uh, one day, this, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, you know, you've got you to gotta keep the commandments. You need to, um, you know, give your offerings. Do, do all the things that are written in the law. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, well, teacher, I've, I've done all those things. What else must I do? And Jesus sort of famously turns to him and says, well, go sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. And we're told at the end of that story that the rich young ruler walks away very sad, very upset because he had a great many things. He's rich. He's insulated from the world. He's protected. And so what Jesus is asking him to do is to give up all of his protection, give up everything that insulates him, give up everything that he is hiding behind and come and experience the salvation that Jesus offers. Jesus is offering him a grace that actually the rich young ruler is asking for, and the rich young ruler is still not in a posture where he can receive that. And so he walks away very sad. There's another great story in in Luke, uh, the story of the prodigal son that many of you have, have probably heard and I, I won't go through the whole story, but essentially uh, this, this young boy goes to his father and says to his father, hey, I, I wish you were dead so that I could receive my inheritance. And this upsets the father, but the father thinks about it and says, okay, well, I'll divide my inheritance and I'll give it, I'll give it out before I die, even though that's not really what we do. And so he divides his, his property and gives part of it to his son. And the younger son goes off to a, a different land and squanders everything that he's been given. And he has a change of heart, you know, while he's away and, and he comes back. And uh, there's this really famous scene where the, the father is watching for the son, it seems like, every single day. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally the son comes back and the father, while the son is still a long way away, begins to run after him to receive him. 
And so they go in and, and, and they hug and they, they all catch up and then the father wants to throw this giant festival and this, this giant party and so he has all of the servants begin making preparations for that and then the older son comes and he pulls his father out of the tent and he says to his father, why are you doing this for him? Why are you celebrating him? Because he, he just told you a few months ago that you know, he wanted you dead and then he squandered his whole inheritance and now he's running back to you and you receive him with open arms and you throw this giant party for him. He doesn't deserve that. And the older brother goes on and says, I've been with you this entire time. I've been a faithful worker. I've been your best person. And you haven't offered me any of this. And the father says to the son, son, everything I have has always been yours. But the older son can't receive the grace and the celebration and the goodness that is being offered. And so this parable ends with this really great image of the father sort of re-entering the tent to celebrate and the older son pouting outside the tent not going to celebrate. Anyone read any Brene Brown? Anyone? A little bit, yeah. She's, she's uh, wonderful. I, I think she's a sociologist and um, does a lot of research on, on human behavior, but... Uh, more research on shame and its impact on women specifically, but there are um, lessons for all of us. And she, I, I heard this quote somewhere, and I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting where I heard it, but I know it was her. She says something like, I challenge any one of you to tell me a story of a hero. Any hero, you, you pick. Tell me a story of a hero, she says, where they didn't open themselves up to danger. They didn't face adversity. They didn't go through trials and transformation. Essentially, tell me a story about a hero without them being vulnerable. And you can't do it. <laughs> you really can't do it. And her, her whole point is that courageous acts require vulnerability. Courageous acts require Vulnerability, And I, I want to twist that a little bit and, and kind of piggyback off of what she's saying. And I want to say, well, transformation requires vulnerability. Transformation requires vulnerability. It requires us to take on that posture of openness and receiving, being open to a new thing that God might want to do through us. Does anyone have a hard time with that? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing that's stopping us from transforming. And I think that this is the thing that is stopping Jonah from transforming as well. It's the thing that leaves him in the desert miserable after this whole kind of crazy ride through uh, being called by God, running away, being swallowed by a fish, being vomited out, and then finally going into the city and doing what he was supposed to do. And I told you from the beginning that I don't think Jonah ever repents throughout the book because he tells us here at the end in chapter 4, he says, 
he says, death to me is better than life. Did you catch that? Death to me is better than life. And that is the exact opposite stance of where God is standing. God, I think, is sort of always saying that life to me is better than death. Life and life to the full, Jesus says, he comes to offer us. But Jonah is on the opposite side of that, and he's saying death to me is better than life. And so when we hear that, we kind of look back on the story and we're able to see like, oh, when he jumped over the edge of the ship, it wasn't about saving the sailors. It wasn't about this act of repentance. It was because he believed deep down in his heart that death was better than life and he would rather not deal with this world that God was imposing upon him. He would rather remain unchanged and die than change and live. And so here he is, arguing with God and begging now to die because he would rather exit this world than watch his enemy be forgiven. He would rather exit this world than have to, have to live in a place where he didn't get his way. He doesn't want to be vulnerable. He doesn't want to receive any of the grace that God is offering to the Ninevites, any of the grace that God is offering to him. I mean, think about this. Jonah's begging for death and God is saying no, and I think that that is a kind of grace. But the way I read this story, Jonah's just going to sit outside the city essentially until he rots because he doesn't want to change. And so even though he's disobeyed God and even though he's been angry and even though he continues to hate his enemy, God is still offering this grace and Jonah saying, no. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. The thing that keeps us from transformation is that lack of vulnerability. It's that impulse to self-protect, to close ourselves off. And maybe some of that's good, you know. I, I think we need consistency, we need safety, we need stability, we need all of these things, but maybe there's a balance in that. Yes, we need to close some things off, but also we need to remain open and curious or we'll never change. We'll never make that move from what we might call disobedience to obedience. And even if you don't want to frame it like that, maybe there are things in your life that you're thinking of right now that you actually do want to change. I told you last week that I, you know, I, I'm kind of a striver. I'm always trying to accomplish things. And, and so I said last week, I do want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. And you know, I might be okay now. I might be passing, but I, I want to be better. And the only way that I'm going to do that, you know, I can, I can listen to podcasts. I can do continuing education. I can do all of these things. But if I'm not open to receiving those, right, and to hearing that new wisdom, how can I receive it? And so the question I've been asking is like, well, how do you... If we know we need to be open and vulnerable, how do you take on that posture? What does, it, what does it look like? What does it look like? And so I did some research, and I asked some of those questions. But before we get there, as, as a show of good faith, I want, to, I want to be vulnerable with you. 
I want to share a little bit about how I think I need to change and things that I am going to try to work on. And I want you to know these things about me, not to make myself the center of this, but to model what we've been talking about these last three weeks. That transformation does require vulnerability. And this is at least one step that you can take. Since Naima has been born, I've noticed that, um, one, I, I really love her, obviously. Naima is my daughter, if you don't know. She's um, eight months old, and she, she's wonderful. She's so curious and, and, and um, laughs a lot, and, and she actually sleeps pretty well. Like, I, I don't have a lot of complaints, honestly. It's been, um, in my understanding, relatively easy. And I say that, and I'll still be here when she's two years old, and I may have a different opinion. But <laughs> it's been really good. But one of the things that I've noticed is that I'm, I'm always on my phone. I'm always on my phone. And even when I'm watching her, we might be playing. If I get a notification, my attention turns from her, right, to the thing. Okay, let me respond to this, and then I go back to her. But I'm always being pulled away, and I'm always being distracted. And I just started thinking the other day, what, what signal does that send, you know? that the phone is more important than the child. And, and, you know, you might think it's insignificant on a small scale, but, but let, that, let that play out over time, over 15 years, over 18 years. What does that do to a person? And I could, I could, I could blame technology. I could blame whoever I want. I could blame all of these things. Or I could be open and just say, you know what, like, I need to put my phone down sometimes. I want to be better about that. I don't want my daughter growing up thinking that technology is more important than her. I don't want her to have to fight for my attention all the time if she needs something. I don't want to see what that looks like in 18 years. I want to put my phone away. I want to practice giving her my full attention. My presence. As a pastor, I, to- I told you last week, some of you sent me an email about this, and I appreciate your encouragements. I told you it's very intimidating to be up here because we have, we have a very educated crowd. Uh, on top of that, there's like this storied history that I feel like I'm following, and, and maybe I'm making that narrative up, but I, I have heard some of your previous pastors preach sermons. And I, I know what I'm up against here, all right? I know, I know the standard, and some of you have let me know what the standard is. And, and that, that really gets to me in some ways, but not, not in a bad way, not in a bad way. I mean, I told you I'm a striver. I want to accomplish things, so I will, I mean, I'll make something out of nothing if I need to, as long as I can set a goal and achieve it, right? But I feel that weight, and I feel that history, and I feel the potential here, and I see sort of maybe what God is up to, and I get excited about that, and I want to come up here, and I want to change the world with my words. I do. I told, I told Emily on her first day that um, I was getting ready to preach, and I was like, one of my issues is that every time I get up there, I think I'm going to change the world with my sermon. And that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching and everything to do with my ego. And I want to get rid of that. Because the shadow side of that, it might, it might mean that I strive and I set goals and I continually make myself better, but I also make this about me. 
and not about the Word of God, not about lending you all the wisdom that I feel like I've come across, not about having this conversation about what is God up to in our midst. It just becomes about me and my performance, and then I get worried, and then I start to doubt, and then it just goes down this trail, and that's not fair to anybody. It's a weakness I have. Maybe it's been given to me by society. Maybe it's genetic. I don't know, but I really want to work on taking my ego out of this. Maybe every sermon won't be so polished. Maybe every meeting won't run so smoothly. But my hope is that uh, we do it and we do it together and not just so that I can perform. Y'all can keep me accountable for these things too. As a husband, I think the thing that I really want to work on is that presence piece. It's really easy, I've noticed, after being with Sarah now for a, a bunch of years. I feel like, it, like it's almost been like five years now. And I know for some of you that have been together like 50 plus years, you're like five years, come on. <laughs> but to me, I'm like five years, oh my goodness. And you, you, you begin to... Um, just get into a trend. You know, you, you might call it a rut, but it's not necessarily a rut, but you just have a way of doing things and you keep operating that way. And one of the ways that Sarah and I have operated, because we're both workaholics, is that we only ever talk about work or we only ever talk about what project we're working on or what we're up to. And I think what I've forgotten is that I need to get to know her for her. And I only know this, and I've only come to, to think of this because we've been doing marriage counseling lately, and one of the things we tell all of our couples is that, you know, communication is key, right? And, and we talk, the first thing we talk about is um, this thing John Gottman calls building love maps. And if you haven't heard of John Gottman, uh, run, again, don't walk. He's, he's wonderful. They call him the love doctor. And uh, I, I really appreciate all of his stuff, but he talks about building love maps. And for him, a love map is asking your partner questions just to get to know them so that you know who they are in that moment. Because as many of you know that have been uh, married for a while or together with your partner for a while, you know that you change over time. I heard a pastor say one time that um, his wife had been married to like six different people and they were all the same person at the same time. Because we transform and so we have to continually get to know each other and not just assume that we're on the same page. And I'm not always great about that because I have my to-do lists, I have my things, I have all these other important things that I'm worried about and I don't want to take that time. Those are my weaknesses. I have a tendency to make my life about myself. I didn't just make all of this up. I actually did some research on what, what would it mean to be vulnerable? How, how are people vulnerable? Is anyone doing this work of embodying vulnerability? Because, you know, it's something we say a lot. Be vulnerable, act courageously, all of these things. But who, who's actually doing it? And I, I was reminded of um, a, an adult ed unit that we have coming up here on the 12 Steps in spirituality that's going to be taught by our clerk of session, Craig McLean, and um, Kathy Newman, one of our longtime members. And 
I started doing some research on the 12 steps and AA and all of this, and I found that if you read every single step, it's like this act and this practice of vulnerability. So the, the first step is, one, admitting that you are powerless against alcohol or whatever it is you're struggling with. It's actually admitting that you're weak and vulnerable. And then the next step is admitting that there's a higher power that can help us, which is also an act of vulnerability, because you're saying you don't have the power in yourself to transform yourself. It comes from outside. It's a grace that is received. And I could go on and on through all the 12 steps. I don't want to take the time for that, but it is a process of becoming more and more vulnerable, and in that way, transforming into the person that you want to be. And I hope I'm not too far off and not stealing too much thunder from our facilitators, but be on the lookout for that shameless plug. That, that's coming up, the 12 steps in spirituality. There are ways that we can transform. There are postures that we can take. The only question is, is are you willing to do that? Are you willing to open yourself up? Are you willing to be vulnerable? You don't have to come up here and do what I did, all right? That's okay. But you might have a friend you call and just share something you're struggling with, something you want to change. Are you willing to transform? Jonah is not willing to transform. He's not. And I know it's an open-ended story, but it seems to me, the way that I read it, is that he, he is sort of stuck in his ways, and that is how he's going to be, and he is going to be in that desert, shaking his fist at God until he gets what he wants, and that is death. And sometimes we think that Jonah is made miserable because he's been disobedient, and his disobedience has led him to this road, and that may be partly true, but I think he's more miserable because he is unwilling to open himself to this new thing that God is doing. And brothers, sisters, I pray that you don't step into that misery. I pray that you would open yourself up to a new thing that God is doing in your life, whatever that is. I pray that you would walk the way of transformation and become vulnerable. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for Jonah. Thank you for old stories that give us fresh wisdom. God, I pray that you would open us all up Help us to be open to receiving your grace and your love so that we might be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.